0: It's wonderful to be with you guys, and uh, if um, if you would turn with me, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we've been uh, um, going through the book of 1 Corinthians together, and we're going to keep on going through, and you know, I'm, uh, I don't have like uh, 10 New Year's resolutions for you guys this morning, our resolution is to know God's word, amen? So we're going to keep going through it, so... Um, If you would look with me in chapter 7, verse uh, verse 1, it says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for, again, as as we prayed earlier, this this new year, more time that you've given us, and truly, Lord, our, our greatest resource that we have is not money it's not possessions it's not our body it's the time that you've given us here on this earth so lord we pray that we would be even more faithful this year than we were in the last to you that we would be good stewards of the time that you give us and Lord, we pray this morning that as we talk about marriage, as we talk about this this wonderful picture of you and your church, of you and your bride, Lord, that it would just enlighten our minds and our hearts as to your will for our lives, as to your love for us, and that we would see a clear and concise picture of your view of us as your children and as your bride. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you for your word. And, and Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. It's your word that we want to receive and to hear. So we ask that you would speak to each and every heart this morning. And in your name we pray and we all said, Amen. So uh, last time we went through chapter six, and in chapter six, uh, Paul at first deals with the litigious issues that were going on in Corinth. They were suing one another, <laughs> unfortunately, um, and uh, Paul addresses that issue and, and, and how it really grieved him and it grieves the Lord that uh, um, when, rather, two believers cannot come together in unity and just love one another, but they take it before non-believers and And at the end of um, chapter 6, he he spoke of sexual immorality. And one of the issues in Corinth, in fact, in, in the Corinthian culture, and I think it's good for us to understand this for this morning as we talk about marriage and we talk about the marriage relationship, it's good for us to understand that in the Corinthian culture, fornication was actually not even viewed as a bad thing. It doesn't even sound that far from our culture, does it? You know, fornication, that is sex outside of marriage, was not something that was looked at as bad. And so Paul has to deal with these people. These people are new believers. They're very young in the Lord. Um, They've been filled with the Spirit. They've been saved. But they still need to learn what it is to follow after Jesus Christ. And so they have these questions. And that's what Paul begins to deal with in verse 1. If you look there with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And so Paul had, uh, and it was common back then, they didn't have text messages like we do, right? You know, uh, if we want to get a hold of somebody, what do we do? We shoot them a text, right? Or, or they didn't even have email, you know, Um and and they uh, they had they didn't even have the postal service like we do you know I mean uh, there wasn't Pony Express even yet you know and so they would write letters and sometimes it would take a great amount of time or they'd have to personally send it with someone traveling so anyways it was a long process but Paul wrote to these Corinthians and they were writing back with questions for him and so Paul's going to begin to address some of these. Uh, specific issues, and we'll, we'll kind of go through what, what we can kind of surmise as to su- what some of the questions would be by the context of, of his answers. But the first principle he gives, look there again with me in verse 1. Um, right after he says, now concerning the things of which I wrote to you, he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So what is, uh, here he gives a governing principle about uh, re- the relationship between males and females, right? And he says the governing rule is this, it is good for that man, a man should not touch a woman. Now again, in the Corinthian culture, they were very loose, they were very lax, and they were very worldly. And uh, so this uh, this was quite a shocker to them to hear this. Now, in Paul's culture, the Jewish culture, it was shameful for a man to even talk to a woman, much less touch another woman, especially if she was married. You know, and so in the Jewish culture, this was a very literal thing. They, they wouldn't talk to, they wouldn't touch women. In fact, um, it was common, in and it wasn't right, but it was common in uh, the days of Jesus that a husband would not even speak to his wife in public. I mean, that's kind of how crazy they had it. You know? but, uh, but here Paul says, hey, listen, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, verse 2, Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And so Paul acknowledges, he says, hey, listen, I know that God has given these natural desires to man. And in fact, when God made man before he made Eve, he made Adam, right? And what did he say right before he made Eve? He said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so God has given us these natural physical longings and desires for companionship. And so Paul says, hey, listen, I understand. Nevertheless, because of this sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. I want to point out a couple of things here in verse 2 because there are some people who claim that the Bible doesn't teach that marriage is only for a man and a woman. But here, what does Paul say? He says, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. That's pretty specific, isn't it? That, that is, marriage is between a man and a woman. I want you to also notice the, um, uh, what, uh, what tense this is in. It is not in the plural. So this would also speak against polygamy, wouldn't it? Paul says, let each man singular have his own wife singular and let each woman singular have her own husband singular. And so Paul says what God has designed for mankind is that there would be one woman and one man together. And that is to be the fulfillment of those desires that God has naturally made. In verse 3 he goes on. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In verse 3, Paul begins to give instruction as to how the marriage relationship should work. And the first thing he points out is this, is that husbands, you are to render or to give your wife the affection. Notice Notice the word he uses. He says, do her. Notice Paul does not say that, husbands, you're to give the affection that your wife earns from you. Do you notice that? That Paul doesn't say that she's got to work for it, and when she works for it, you give it to her. That affection that she craves, that she desires. Wives, do you desire affection from your husband? Of course you do. It's natural, isn't it? And in fact, and I, I don't know where you have worked before. I've, I've worked on construction sites. I've worked with, and I'm sure you have a job too, where you encounter non-believers, right? And you talk with them. And what, are, what do they often complain about? What's usually the number one thing that they complain about? It's, it's usually their spouse, isn't it? The ladies, they often talk about their husbands. And I can't believe how boneheaded my husband is, is blah, 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 blah. And sometimes, guys, we deserve it, Right? And then the husbands, what do they do? Oh, I can't believe my wife does this or does that or doesn't do this. And, I, you know, and they complain and they complain. She's not giving me the affection. Well, he's not giving me the affection I desire. And one of the problems that we find in marriage is, is that when, first of all, we have to deal with the fact that we are sinners, right? That we're not perfect. So we, we are already dealing with ourselves who is a fallen person. And sometimes we have this idea that when we get married, we'll be complete. You know, we, we use the Jerry Maguire line, you complete me, you know, that he says. I don't recommend the movie, I just know it's in, that line's in there. You know, but, but the truth is, is that in, in this fallen world, marriage will not complete you. It will not make you the person that you need to be. And what you often find is is that as you get married, instead of things becoming easier and better, you not only have one sinner to deal with, that is yourself, but you've got another sinner to deal with, that is your spouse, right? And they have problems that you never anticipated. And so oftentimes there's a huge misunderstanding when it comes to marriage. But what does Paul say? He says, husbands, render to to your wives, the affection that is due to her. Now, why is it due to her? Because that is the way that God has designed it. God has designed marriage for a specific purpose, and we're going to talk about this, um, Lord willing, as we go through this passage, that it is to be a picture of Jesus and the church. That is, marriage is to be a wonderful portrait, a painting, a depiction of how Jesus deals with you and I as his church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, Paul gives some very specific instructions about marriage, doesn't he? But towards the end of the chapter, he reveals this great mystery that all along God had given this institution we called marriage to depict what would happen with God and his people. Even in the Old Testament, we have a prophet who is the entire book, and his name is Hosea, the entire book is about his relationship with his wife, who, by the way, was a prostitute. And continued to be unfaithful and he was told, Hosea the prophet was told to go and get her and bring her back. Go and get her and bring her back. And as he did that, the message to Israel through this prophet Hosea's life was that this is how God, this is how I, God was saying, was deal with my people. I go and I get them and I bring them back to me. And marriage is itself, the institution, is to be a picture of Christ and the church. And so what's the first thing he says? Husbands, render to to their wives the affections due to her. And notice it says, and ladies, you're not off the hook, right? This isn't just a one-sided thing. You know, I've I've heard people say that marriage is a 50-50 endeavor. It's not. It's 100% and 100%. He says, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Notice what he says in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body. Now, my goodness, if you go to a feminist rally and quote this verse, you'll probably be stoned, won't you? But be sure you quote the whole verse. Because here it says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What is supposed to be happening in this institution of marriage? There is an exchanging of authority. Before you're married, you are the governor of your body, right? And as a Christian, the Lord is always Lord over all. But in the sense of intimacy, in the sense of living and living with someone, when you get married, what you do with that covenant is you hand over the authority of your body to your spouse. That is, what was once yours now becomes theirs. You don't have authority over it anymore. And vice versa. What was once theirs becomes yours. So, what does this mean? Well, of course, that means that you can't just go out and do whatever you want, right? That you are someone else's. And why did God design it this way? In Romans chapter 12, the very verse that Pastor Chuck read at the end, if you were listening, what does God's word exhort us to do? He says, therefore, I beseech you, there, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy and acceptable, for this is your reasonable service. So what do we do, what are we to do in our relationship with Christ? We are to offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, right? Now think about this. Did God offer His body to you and me? He did, didn't He? When Jesus Christ became a man, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John chapter 1 says, He came and He gave Himself, He, put his, he allowed His body to be hung on a cross. Why? For His bride. In fact, in Ephesians, and I want to read it to you real quick, you don't have to turn there with me, but in Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. So why did Jesus die? Why did he offer his body? He offered it for his bride. Do you see the parallel here this morning? That marriage, as we love one another in our marriages, as you love your spouse, as you give your body to your spouse, you are being a living representative of what the gospel actually is. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an amazing picture that God gives us? But it's sad to see in the world today how often the institution of marriage the covenant of marriage itself is misrepresented isn't it it's sad to see how many divorces there are out there and listen if you've been through a divorce there's grace but divorce was never to be a part of God's original design as we're going to find here in a moment in um, later on in chapter 7 but I love this picture the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. The husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There's a giving. There's an exchanging of, of who you are, of your body, of what you do for one another. And so there's this sacrificial love between you and your spouse. He goes on to say in verse five, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. So Paul, um, one of the questions that probably arose in Corinth that Paul is dealing with here is, is that it was very common, and sometimes in some circles it's still even common today, to think that abstinence means holiness. Holiness. That is to say that, that uh, you committing to be a celibate Means that you are more holy, you're more spiritual, that you're, you are better than those who have gotten married. And, and so some of the things that may have been happening, and we're kind of getting our clues from the text here this morning. Um, when Paul says in verse five, do not deprive one another, he's talking about the conjugal relationship in marriage. Um, he's also talking about what he spoke of before, which, which is, um, the, the, the physical intimacy is included there. Um, in uh, verse uh, chapter, or chapter, verse, in verse um, three, sorry, when he says uh, the wife, the, the affections due to her. And so these affections, this relationship, this loving relationship that includes the physical intimacy, Paul says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to prayer and fasting and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What was probably happening in the church in Corinth was, is they thought, well, it's more holy to be a celibate. So those people that were even married were probably saying, let's abstain from one another. That way we can live more holy for the Lord. And Paul is saying, no, don't do that. In fact, in verse 5, when it says, do not deprive, that word deprive literally means this. It means to defraud. You ever felt defrauded? You ever felt cheated? You know, and there's a lot of people even in their marriages, they feel cheated. Well, that's just not the man I married. Well, geez, I thought marriage was going to be a lot different than this. You know? And it's sad. I've, I, I even hear this from, and, and there, is a, there is a truth, I believe, where we have high and lofty expectations and our expectations need to change. I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about the general fact that husbands are called to love their wives. And when the wives, you don't feel loved, you're being defrauded. You are. And when there's not physical intimacy in the relationship, in the marriage relationship, someone's being defrauded. And Paul is saying, don't deprive one another. Don't deprive one another. Except, he gives an exception, with consent. So it has to be mutual. You know, it can't just be one person controlling it, saying, no, we're not doing this. And the other person's like, what? You know, this isn't what I signed up for. Has to be mutual, with consent, for a time is the second requirement. That is, it's a set time. It's not Indefinitely. It's not a, okay, well, we'll just see how it goes from here on out. You agree upon a set time that you may, and this is, has to be the reason, give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So this is the only time in which you're to abstain from one another is if, if, it, if it's agreeable to both of you, it's a mutual consent, that uh, it, it's for a set time, and that you can give yourselves to seeking the Lord by prayer, Lord, by prayer and, sa- and fasting and And come together again, he says, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is what God has given us to help guard us from immorality, is the marriage relationship. And, and And he's designed this marriage relationship as a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. And he's given us these desires. And so Paul says, hey, don't deprive one another. In verse 6, he says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. What he's saying is is that, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you have permission to abstain from one another for a time as long as it meets these conditions. It's not a commandment that you do that. <laughs> he wants to make sure that he's not commanding that because there would be those who say, oh, Paul said we did it, so we got to do it now, you know. And the other person would be like, wait a second, you know. This is a, this is a concession. That is, it's a permission to do so, not a commandment. He goes on to say, In verse seven. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And Paul is saying here, um, that I, when he says, I wish that all men were even as myself, uh, he's, he goes on to say that uh, he, he himself was unmarried at that time. Um, but he acknowledges in verse 7 that each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now what is he saying here? That each one has a gift from God. Well, what he's in saying, very plain and simple, is, is that marriage is a gift. And so is celibacy. And God chooses to give different people different gifts. And so the question is, is not when are you going to get married? How many of you heard that in your youth? I didn't get married until I, was, I think I was, was I, where were, was I, 24, Kel? That? Yeah, 23. You know, so after I came home from Bible college, everyone's like, so you're going to get married soon? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't met her yet, you know. But the question in the Christian life is not whether, um, is not uh, when you're going to get married, but it's it's what the Lord has gifted you in. What has the Lord called you to? Are you called to live your life holy for the Lord and, and not to get married? Because that's a gift too. Celibacy is a gift. Now, some of you are thinking, that's a lame gift. And some of you are thinking, man, I wish I had that gift, right? <laughs> Hopefully not. But you know, the idea in the world that you have to do these certain things is just not the biblical way of doing them. And what Paul addresses here is, is that God gives you the strength to fulfill the calling which he calls you to fulfill. And that is to say that, that what God calls you to do, where he guides, he provides What he leads you to do, he's going to give you the gift and the strength to carry out that calling. And so um, he goes on to say, but I say to the unmarried, in verse 8, and and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. So there Paul's saying he's unmarried. Um, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul's a practical guy. He's not not a... um, uh, you know, just a theoretical theologian up in, the, up in the sky saying, giving us all these principles, he's like, you know what, listen, I understand. What God gives you as a gift, you're, go- you're going to understand how? By, by, uh, by your desire and your passion. Now, I, I think everybody, even if you're called to be a celibate, even if you're called to be single for the Lord, that there are going to be times where you desire a spouse, and I don't think Paul is saying if you ever have an inkling to get married that that's God's will for you, you should get married. But notice what he says here when he says, for it's better to marry than to burn. I think everybody feels the heat, so to speak, of wanting to get married. That is, they, they want to go and, and, and they have that desire, but there's a difference between a burning desire and something that's, huh, yeah, that might be nice. And so Paul is saying, hey, hey, it's better for those widows and those who are unmarried if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, and I don't believe he's using that derogatory, again, I, I, or in a bad way, is saying, oh, if you're, I guess if you're weak, go ahead and get married, you know, because he acknowledged in verse seven that it is, it is a gift, right? And so he said, you know, if you realize that you can't, you can't control this desire, that, that, that it's burning within you for a spouse, then it's better for you to get married. And that's essentially what he's saying here. And so in verse 10, he goes on. He begins to address those that are married. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest, not I, the uh, to the rest I sorry, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the believing wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart, or a brother or si- A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul now addresses two different classes of married people. And in God's eyes, there's only two classes. There are those who are married to believers and are believers themselves. And there are those who are believers and are married to unbelievers, those are the two whom he's speaking to. And of course, he doesn't speak to those who are both unbelievers because they're not following the Lord yet anyway. They need to hear the gospel and get saved, right? But uh, Paul Paul is addressing this issue because no doubt there were people in Corinth who when they got saved, and, and I'm sure you know people and maybe you're one of them, who when you got saved, your spouse was not a believer, right? Maybe you got saved first in your marriage relationship. And the question is, is what, what should we do then, right? I'm married to an unbeliever, and God's word, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, it would be better not to be married to an unbeliever. So what should I do? Get a divorce? Well, Paul's, Paul's um, counsel to that, uh, to those who are married to unbelievers, is, is that if they're willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And the same with the husband. If the, unbelie- uh, if, if the husband is saved and she's willing to live with him, don't let them divorce him. But let's back up here in verse 10. He says, um, in, in verse 10, he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So what's the counsel to those who are believers and are married? It's that you're not to depart, right? A husband is not to... Filed divorce papers to his wife, and a wife is not to depart and divorce her husband. And even if there is a separation, if they're both believers, they're not to go get married to other people. He says, let them remain uh, unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so, if you're both believers, now just and, and we understand this as well. Just because someone claims to be a believer doesn't mean they are, right? And I have met people. I know people. Um, I know peop- people who are very near and dear to my heart who have married other people, and they said, "Well, they said they were a Christian, and now they claim they're not, <laughs> or they say they're a Christian, but man, they're just—they're not living for the Lord. There's no fruit of the Spirit in them." And in that case, the problem isn't so much with your marriage as it is with their relationship with the Lord. That's the first thing that needs to be taken care of. Amen. And then we can deal with the, the issue of, of, of the marriage. But the picture here is quite a beautiful one. And it is that marriage is to be binding and permanent and lifelong. Now, why did God design that? Because if you've been married for five minutes, you realize that marriage can be difficult, can't it? And I say that hesitantly because my wife is sitting right in front of me. <laughs> but marriage can be difficult, can it? And especially in our culture, I think now more than ever, what do we love to do when difficulty comes? We love to run the other way, don't we? We love to just get out. Oh, I don't want to deal with it. You know, and and, and it's sad that that we are like that in our culture, that we don't stick to our word, we won't stick to our promises. But that's the way our culture is, but that's not the way the church is supposed to be. Amen, church? (laughs) We're to stick to our promises. But the reason God did this is not because he wanted to make it hard on us. God's not a cosmic killjoy up there sitting, sit, sitting in heaven ready to throw lightning bolts down at you and laugh at you when things get difficult. He's not like that. He's a loving Father with a purpose in everything that He does. And what is the purpose for the permanence of marriage? It's to depict God's commitment to you. Maybe this morning you feel as if God's forsaken you. Maybe you've been feeling alone as if God, if He could, spiritually speaking, as if He could hand you some divorce papers because you've failed one too many times. (laughs) Anybody ever felt that way? That God had just, you know, as if you, you were to walk up to God and God would just say, you know, that was the last straw. I'm out. I think we all have. Because we all continue to struggle with sin And our enemy wants to make sure we feel condemned about it, doesn't he? He wants to drive us away from the very one who can save us. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. He doesn't cast out the broken. He doesn't scorn the sinner. He says, come. He says, come closer. It's completely opposite to our response, right? When something's dirty, we want to say get away. I grew up with dogs. Every time they rolled in something dead or stinky, it was get away. What does God do? He says, "Come here, I'm going to clean you. I'm going to love you. Because my commitment to you is not something that I just flippantly cast aside. It's eternal. Jesus said, my sheep are in my hand and they shall never perish. You're secure in your relationship with him. So the purpose of marriage being permanent is not so that we can go, oh, I wish God didn't do that. It's so hard. It's so that we could see a picture of how God looks at us. And indeed, there are times where it's hard. Indeed, there are times where the sin of your spouse hurts you and in those moments you can identify with God when we have sinned against Him it's in those moments where we can feel the pain that God feels when we ourselves have rejected Him and it's in that moment that we can depict the grace and love of God by still going back to our spouse wrapping our arms around them and saying I still love you you're still mine I still wouldn't choose anyone else I'm with you to the end. That's God's intent. Isn't it a beautiful picture? It's hard, but it's beautiful, isn't it? In verse 13, the second group or I'm sorry, starting in verse 12, the second group is, but the rest, not I, not the Lord, say. In other words, there isn't a direct commandment from God for this, but as as, as his apostle, he's, he's giving us instruction here. He says, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband... Um, who does not believe if he is willing to live with her let him not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the believing husband is sanctified uh, or the believing wife is sanctified by the husband otherwise your children would be unclean but now they are holy so what do you do you're stuck in this situation and it's it's hard maybe you've been there maybe you're there it's hard it's not easy but if they're willing to live with you, what does Paul say? He says, this is my counsel. And I, and I believe in, in that phrase when he says willing to live, he's speaking of willing to live, in, in, not, not in an uh, in a, in a, in abusive way, you know. If they're willing to live with you, that is they're willing to live in that relationship. So if you're, maybe if you're, you're being abused by a non-believing spouse, it may be time to, to separate get out of a dangerous situation. But here Paul says, if they're willing to live with you, allow them to remain. Remain with them. And what is the reason Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified that is set apart by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified or set apart by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. What is he saying here? Is he saying that that the non-believing spouse will be saved because of the salvation of the believing spouse? No, he's not saying that. When he says holy, he's not speaking of Christ's holiness. That only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the benefits that come from being around God's people. And let me give you a couple illustrations of that. You remember when Joseph was sold into slavery, right? Recall that story? Joseph, the favorite son, coat of many colors, we often say, his multifaceted coat. A sign of authority and power was given to Joseph, the youngest son. His brothers got jealous, sell him into slavery. Where does he go? Potiphar's house, right? And what happens in Potiphar's house because Joseph is there? Potiphar's house gets blessed. Potiphar sees the the blessing that's upon Joseph's life, and what happens? He brings him up, and he makes him the head of his house. And then he goes to prison because he's... um, Defrauded and 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 uh, lied about concerning uh, his wife and Potiphar's wife, and then he uh, he becomes the literally a, a a ruler, the second most powerful ruler of Egypt. And what happens to Egypt? Egypt is blessed, right? And why is it blessed? Because Joseph's there. And why is Joseph there? Because God put him there to bless Egypt and Joseph's family through Egypt. Same thing happened with Jacob when he went to Laban. Laban became very blessed because Jacob was there. And the same thing will happen in your marriage if you're you're in this place that Paul describes. If you're married to a non-believer, your believer will encounter the grace and the blessings of God through you. They will be set apart from the world in that sense that they will experience the blessing of God, and they will have an opportunity to hear the greatest blessing, that is the gospel of God, and to be saved. And that's what Paul goes on to describe after he says in verse 15, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if, if the non-believer says, listen, I'm out, then okay, they're allowed to go. And you're no longer under bondage. You're no longer bound by that relationship. Because God has called us to peace. But what's the principle? Why would we even try to endure? In verse 16, he says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What's the point? The point is their salvation. That's the goal. Is that they might become saved. That's your desire. So if you're in that position We'll pray for you. It's tough. But keep persevering and keep seeking the Lord and keep praying for your spouse. He goes on to say in verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one of us, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling which he was called. Were you Um, called while a slave, do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. And so, here Paul begins to really address the heart issue that was behind this desire to divorce the non-believer and even divorce the believers um, to abstain from, from marital relations and all those things. And, 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 and the, the overarching uh, temptation that is behind that is this idea, and I'm sure you've heard of it, that the grass is always greener on the other side. You've heard that phrase before, right? Right? If I could only change my position or my situation, things would be better. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you don't need to change. If you're married, you don't need to change things. <laughs> Just serve the Lord as a married person. He goes on to use circumcision and uncircumcision to be, and even slavery as an example. If you're a slave, you don't need to be freed to serve the Lord. You can serve the Lord right where you are. If you're free, guess what? You're Christ's servant. You're Christ's slave. Don't become a slave of men. In other words, don't let men and the situations that others may put you in or maybe you've put yourself in dictate how you live your life because that's what we're saying when we're saying the grass is greener over there, right? Is that if my situation was different, I could live or be different. But Paul's saying, no, you're not born again in the sense that uh, to, to change your physical surroundings and your situation, you're born again spiritually and wherever God has you, he wants to use you where you are. I remember when I was in Bible college and coming out of Bible college, I worked for various different companies and the Lord always blessed me with work and just various jobs and stuff. And it was interesting, I, I began to find a pattern that once I got done like witnessing to people in that job, like either the worker would run out or I'd be going back to school and then I'd get a different job. And I was always like, okay, Lord, like, what's going on here? Are you just like taking me to different places for, you know, because I thought it was to make money. Right? That's why we think we have our jobs, isn't it? But the Lord took me to different places, began to put those people I was working with on my heart and it was funny, as I, was wit- as I witnessed to them, another job would come up and I'd take a different job, you know? I was always like, huh, Okay. So I started looking at these new jobs. I was like, okay, Lord, who do you want me to witness to now? And if it was a job I really didn't like, I'm like, Lord, can you show me real quick? I want to get out of here. (laughs) You know? But God wants to use you where you are. You know, I've heard some funny responses to the phrase that the grass is always greener on the other side. And two of them are this. One of them is, is, yes, the grass may even be greener, but you don't want to pay the water bill. The other one is, is, Yes, the grass is greener, but that's just because there's more manure. You see, a change in situation does not determine our faithfulness in serving the Lord. We can be as faithful as possible right now to the Lord, wherever you are. And that's Paul's point. You don't need to change your position. You don't need to. You've been bought with by a price. Don't be, don't be concerned. Don't be controlled by men. But remain with God in that state in which you were called. We're not going to have time to go through the rest of this chapter, unfortunately. But I want to back up just a minute to show you what I believe is one more picture of Christ and the church and the world. What was the only condition that Paul gave? And we know, we know um, Jesus gives the condition in Matthew, I believe it is, of if, if a spouse um, uh, commits sexual immorality, that that is, that is justifiable grounds for divorce. But here Paul gives only one condition, and that condition is, is that if the person is an unbeliever and desires to leave the relationship, right? That's the only condition for separation. And what's the only condition? condition for separation from eternal life it's when you're an unbeliever and you choose to leave what does God do he comes to a lost world an unbelieving world an unespoused world and he says come I want you to be my bride and what's the unpardonable sin the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is that rejection of the work of the Spirit in your life And the work of the Spirit, of course, is that you would believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and enter into a relationship with Him. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? You know, I think as we look at stuff like this, it makes me realize that God, when He designed creation itself, when He gave these institutions, He didn't give them and then go, scratch his head later and go, you know, that's kind of like what I'm gonna do later on. Hey, I'm gonna tie that in. It makes me look at this and go, God designed this from the very beginning. And Paul says that in Ephesians chapter five. He says, this is the great mystery. Isn't it awesome that we can look back at all these things and go, oh, that's why. If you were were before Christ... (laughs) Living in the age of uh, where, where Israel were the people of God, and you had to go to the temple. You did all of these miraculous, the, not maybe not miraculous, but you did all these awesome things that were signs to the to the coming Messiah. And and with most of them, you had no clue as to what they represented. You were just being obedient to the Lord. But we can look back and we can go, oh, that's why. That's pretty neat. The Lord's so gracious. We live in such an amazing time to serve the Lord. And never forget that God's design for marriage is not, it's not created for your happiness, unfortunately, sometimes, right? Marriage is not created to make you feel good. It's created to show the world the gospel we have an awesome responsibility don't we married couples to show the world the gospel even through our relationships so when you're at work ladies and the girls start complaining about their husbands you can just speak well of yours and you can say you know what I honor I, I respect my husband because man you know that's That's what what the church is supposed to do with Jesus. And through that, you can just begin to preach the gospel with them. Husbands, when those guys are complaining about your wife, their their wives, sorry, not your wife. (laughs) When when when, when other husbands are complaining about their wives, you can say, you know what, I love my wife, but my wife, my love for my wife is nothing compared to Christ's love for his. And you have an open door right there to preach the gospel and to live the gospel right in front of them. Would you stand with me for a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you so much for your truth and your word and the purpose that you give Lord, that we don't have to live, live this life and do these things in a mundane and meaningless way, that we don't have to keep these covenants without purpose when it gets hard, that we can look at your word and we can go, you know what, I want to live the gospel and I want to be a representation of Jesus, of my Lord, and what he's done for me is so much greater than anything I could do for my spouse or anyone else. My debt to him far surpasses anyone's, anyone's debt to me. And Lord, I would just pray that you would remind us of these things always, that our marriages, Lord, that we pray for all the marriages in, in our church here. Lord, and also your church around the world, that you would strengthen them, God, that, that the husbands would cherish their wives and love them just as Christ loved the church and the wives would come under the, the, the authority of their husbands and, and respect and submit to the authority you've given them, not as a doormat, but in love. Lord, we just thank you. We love you. We praise you. We give you glory. And we give you our marriages. We give you our kids, Lord. And, and there's so many things that we have to be thankful for. And as we face this new year, Lord, help us to live and to walk with you. And in your name we pray.